1: Yep, this all new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organisations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to.
0: I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips.
1: I did know that because I wrote that for you
0: you well there you have it stand out from the crowd and migrate to hubspot service hub today
1: visit hubspot.com service and learn how this all-new solution can help you deliver for your customers
2: like most of what we see in terms of well-being is not strategy it's tactics and actually so it's about putting some strategic thought you only know if something's had impact or working if you had a goal in the first place and you're measuring whether you've achieved it or not.
0: Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. What is it? The audio destination for business Business professionals. professionals. Uh, We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist.
1: My name is Al. I'm a business owner.
0: And welcome.
1: Hello, hello, hello. Hello. Yes, so it's Mental Health Week. Is it Mental Health Week or month?
0: Well, it's both. It's Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK and Mental Health Awareness Month in the US.
1: When we were at the water cooler, yes, we mentioned the water cooler again. When we were at the watercolor event um, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to a lot of really cool people who are around mental health. Because the whole event is kind of around well-being and mental health, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it really is. It really is. So we wanted to bring you some of those conversations as we promised, um, and also contribute to the conversation around mental health awareness that's happening in the UK and in the US at the moment. If you're not sure what Mental Health Awareness Week or month is, it is an annual event, um, and they're united by really a focus on on helping people achieve a good mental health. So it's a good time for us to have the conversation, tackle the stigma, and really find out how we can create a society and workplaces that prevent mental health problems from developing. You've probably seen loads in your feed this month about various wellbeing interventions, and we're here to guide you through the various tiers of wellbeing support and perhaps explore the least talked about interventions that supports employee mental health. And that is, of course, Workplace Culture. So to help us do that, we are joined by three incredible guests.
1: Now, before we meet our guests, just take a moment. We take 90 seconds to tell you about another podcast on the network that we're really enjoying right now. Okay, so these three guests. Our first guest is Amy McCowan. One of my favourite people we met at the uh, water cooler. you
0: a bit flirty with they? I was,
1: I was a little bit. I did find myself. I think I'm blaming her.
0: She was getting flirty with you, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she's just She's just so much fun and just doesn't take it to herself too seriously, even though she should because she's pretty incredible. So she's an award-winning workplace health, mental health, and well-being strategist and consultant. She coaches organisations of all sizes, and she puts into place evidence-based and measurable and sustainable strategies, which are as innovative as they are effective. She's also non exactly. Executive Director of Mental Health First Aid England. So let's go meet Amy.
2: So my name's Amy McEwen. Uh, I'm famous for wearing bright colours and jumping up and down. Um, uh, but seriously, I have been in health, mental health and wellbeing for 20 years. I am a dinosaur, as you can tell. Um, I have I spent my 20s running a mental health tech startup at completely the wrong time, given that Facebook didn't exist and no one was talking about mental health. But I managed to put it, it up and running In public sector organisations, I ended up at Ernst & Young to do something in digital health, which was what my master's is in, but then set up and ran their mental health network and then wrote and implemented their UK health and mental health strategy. Uh, And since I had children, I am now an independent consultant. Um, Clients have ranged from FTSE 100 retailers, global strategies. I wrote the EU Parliament's mental health strategy, but I think what will be interesting to your listeners hopefully is a lot of my clients are SMEs. So I've got uh, an organization of 50 people, 20 people, 60 people where I work with them helping to put in place health and mental health that is not a load of waffly, wellbeing fluff and that will actually make a difference.
0: Very excited to have Amy on the podcast. She has such incredible insights. Our next guest is Andrew Berry. Andrew is head of workplace wellbeing at MIND, a charity that for more than 70 years has been committed to making sure that everyone experiencing a mental health problem is treated with the respect they deserve and of course has access to the support they need. Andrew oversees a department of 30 that is committed to supporting employers create mentally healthy workplaces through changes in their policy, practice and culture. Let's hear more from Andrew and the work he doesn't mind.
3: Mind is a mental health charity it operates in both England and Wales uh, and for the last 75 years we've been fighting for mental health uh, in the workplace. That's what I do in the workplace well-being team but also across all kind of settings in society for everyone in society. Uh, And our main mission is to really ensure that everybody gets support and respect, regardless of who they are and what that setting is, whether or not that is trying to hold government to account and to do better uh, and looking at policies that can look to improve life for people with poor mental health. So, for example, around statutory sick pay or looking at benefits, for example, or if that's in the delivery of services.
1: And finally, we're thrilled to welcome Michael Brazier to the podcast. Michael is a workforce digital mental well-being specialist at Couth Work. Now, Cooth Work's digital products um, are designed to help well-being leaders to understand and support and improve the mental health of their workforce. It's available to 15.9 million people across the UK. Very impressive. So let's go hear more about Cooth Work and their preventative approach. Everybody like myself, my
4: colleagues at Couth Work and the well-being leaders we work with, somehow we need to try and put in some early interventions in there because we can all try and provide fixes at the end you know there's great support through eaps and great resources out there to help people who are actually going through um a mental health crisis and that kind of that kind of cure side but i think where we
1: need to really focus our energy now is on prevention and early intervention so before we dive into mental health awareness and meet all our amazing guests let's start off with our regular feature it's the news roundup
0: cue the jingle
1: Okay, so what have you got, Leah?
0: I've got a new word.
1: Lovely. New word alert.
0: Rust out.
1: I feel like I always have to keep saying it back to you. Rust out. It's
0: rust out is it like
1: peace out you go (laughs) rust out and drop like a iron bar and walk Uh, out
0: there's not much peace associated with rust out that's for sure um so yeah rust out a new word that is being talked in the very much in the realm of employee mental health rust out as has some of the symptoms of burnout such as a loss of interest or personal meaning in the job which of course impacts engagement performance and mental health but rust out is the opposite of burnout. So it's when work is monotonous and employees feel underutilized or understimulated in their positions. So in April of this year, a survey of over a thousand U.S. knowledge workers. Uh, oh, by the company. I do like it. It's a company that ran the service called MMM. <laughs> I know. I like it. M-M-H-M-M. MMM. <laughs> you have to say it with that tone, I think. But anyway, they mm-hmm, <laughs> did a survey of a thousand knowledge workers in the US and found that 67% said they had experienced rust out um, all or some of the time in the past year. And 72% said they have left or would leave a job from feeling rust out.
1: Can I just stop? Because I, just, I still don't know what it means. Give me an example of what, what rust out, how I would feel rust Do you know
0: out? in like burnout, it's like you've got It can be very stressed, overstimulated. So burnout is from like sustained stress for long periods of time. Whereas rust out is just sustained dissatisfaction with your job. Basically, you're just not interested in it anymore. It's not stimulating. It's not exciting anymore.
1: Ah, It's kind of like the opposite end. So if I was doing a really stressful job, if I was a brain surgeon, then I could get burnout. If I was just typing up all the results of the brain surgeon's surgery and it was just really boring monotonous, that might get rust out. Exactly. Got it. Sorry, carry on. No,
0: quite right to clarify. Um, So yeah, that is rust out. That is what the survey found a lot of people, what, more than two-thirds of people are experiencing at the moment would leave their job because of it. And what's interesting, there is no link between remote or in-office work. It was much, much the same in terms of people experiencing rust out. Um, But younger workers, as with burnout, interestingly, younger workers are particularly sensitive to feeling underutilised or understimulated. And in fact, 80% would leave or have left a job because of it.
1: Interesting. So what else we got, Leah?
0: Well, Elon Musk is losing his shit again. (laughs) So Elon Musk has called working from home morally wrong and referred to workers in Silicon Valley's technology industry as laptop classes living in la-la land. Wow. (laughs) So his point was that the remote working was unfair on those people that had to commute because of their jobs, such as like builders or mechanics or delivery drivers. And he basically said that remote work is, and this is a quote, the fake Marie Antoinette quote, let them eat cake. You're going to work from home and make everyone who you made your car come to the factory, does that seem morally right? That's messed up. Yeah, I think if you unpack this a little bit, it's like Elon feeling morally outraged by inequity in the workplace doesn't seem to be kind of on brand, <laughs> Elon. But encouraging people to still buy the cars to commute to work feels maybe more of a motivation That If I'm being sceptical, ow.
1: Well, if we fast forward it or reverse about, uh, about 110 years, then... If I've remembered it right, then uh, Henry Ford basically invented the five-day work week because he wanted people to go out and enjoy the weekends so they could buy his cars. And so it sounds like the same thing. He's going, Elon's saying, well, why don't we just go back to commuting to work? Oh, and by the way, I have a few cars that I can sell you in order to commute. (laughs) So yes, it's probably... um, it's probably a very—it's a very strange thing for him to say, but then he's is a very strange, strange, very strange man.
0: It is strange. He argues it's a productivity issue and a moral issue uh, that people should quote get off their goddamn moral high horse with this bullshit because they're asking everyone else to not work from home while they do. It's wrong. He's got a point in that we are thinking we do need to think about how we can create flexibility for people who do have to work in a specific place or in a specific service. Um, so he's right that is a consideration there are there is work being done to build in that flexibility um so yeah I'm not I'm not sure that Elon is really the man of the people he's trying to be here but yes there you go
1: <laughs> okay well thank you Elon what else we got Leah
0: So finally, I came across some research this week that I thought was quite interesting and quite topical for our episode. Uh, So a research team wrote in the British Journal of Sports Medicine uh, that they undertook a meta review looking at evidence from existing reviews of studies into the effectiveness of exercise in treating symptoms of depression and anxiety. Interestingly, they did find that exercise can reduce symptoms to a similar extent as medication or therapy. A find which the researchers quite rightly argue could suggest that exercise is a mainstay approach for treating these types of conditions. Interesting.
1: I heard um I heard that maybe it was about the eighteen hundreds there was a story about a the time i suppose to be psychologist psychiatrist and uh, and when you went to visit him back then he would say okay what i want you to do is when you come back or when you when you leave just count how many chimney pots there are when you're walking home on your way home and the whole point of that was that it got people to look up and they felt better when they left his office Then he did other things like he'd say okay i want you to go out and, and your your only task this week is to go and find a horse find some large water inside something else Again, it he wasn't, he wasn't going to find these things that would make them happy. It was the fact they're out and exercising and doing stuff. So that's really cool. Yeah.
0: yeah, it is interesting. Exercise may be as effective as therapy or medication. But we should remember, of course, and the researchers did make a point of this, we need to bring patients into the conversation as to what type of treatment is best for them. And this is likely to be a better approach than simply replacing medication or therapy with a prescription for yoga.
1: Okay, so let's get back into our episode. So as we know, May in the US is Mental Health Month. The, this year's theme is around look around, look within, which is their kind of like tagline. And it's reminding us that many factors in the workplace come into play when it comes to mental health conditions. Now, the problem is that a lot of sort of mental health or wellbeing interventions come in the sort of this, the, the idea of the, um, I think it's in employer assistance program. What's what? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so you'll have things like mindful, mindfulness at lunch or counseling or free gym memberships. This is again like the online version of just putting a, you know, a a pool table in the break room. Um, It's great, but there's so much more that leaders can do to build environments in which employees feel uh, like positive mental health and they actually thrive. And that's what we're talking about today.
0: Yes. And one of the core aims of mental health awareness is to explore how we can create a society that prevents mental health problems from developing and protect our well-being. We spend roughly a third of our life at work. In fact, the average hours looking, the average person will spend 90,000 hours at work over a lifetime. Wow. It's a lot of hours. So as business leaders, as owners, we really do have a fundamental role to play in protecting mental well-being. And when it comes to protecting mental well-being, there are three lines of defense, Al, just like in risk management. You're, you're familiar with the risk management framework, right? Sure. <laughs> If you're not, if if you shouldn't be familiar uh, with this, although it is very, very prevalent, particularly in, in corporate, but I'm sure there'll be many small businesses that will, will know this framework as well. So when it comes to risk, the first line of defense is formed by managers and staff who are responsible for identifying and managing risk and then collectively should have the necessary knowledge, skills, information and authority to control the risk. So this is the first line of defense, the people on the ground. The second line of defense are functions that oversee or specialize in compliance or the management of risk. So they're the people that provide the policies, the frameworks, the tools and the, the techniques. So that might be, in the, you know, in this analogy, like your, your HR department. Yeah? Okay. The third line of defense is functions that provide independent assurance. Hello, expert providers and auditors.
1: Just explain three. Give me an example of what three might be.
0: So three is people like us, oh, that okay. would go into an organization, oh, well. <laughs> hello, hi, go um, run a well-being audit to see how people are doing, and then suggest recommendations to enforce the first line of defense, so the people on, on the ground, like your line managers, how they support their employees with mental health, or the second line of defense, the people in HR that are creating the policies and the frameworks and the tools.
1: That kind of makes sense to me. And so from what I've learned from you, Leanne, kind of you're saying that the approach to well-being in the workplace should be kind of the same thing. Um, So in this episode, we'll be sharing with you how you can build these three lines of defense to protect their employee mental health. Remember, as we've heard before from our experts, there is no silver bullet. There very rarely is for anything. An effective wellbeing strategy will look different from like the smaller organization with 12 people to IBM with 250,000 people. And of course, it's also dependent on like the history, the goals, the objectives, all that kind of stuff. But we can look at the categories of interventions that you can choose from to meet the needs of your people. So shall we start at the beginning? My question I always ask you on all of this is, why should we even bother?
0: (laughs) Screw it. It'll be fine. What's the worst that can happen? (laughs) well, you might not care about mental health. You might not care about the mental health of employees. You might be that skeptic that thinks, oh, everyone's got a mental health problem just because we talk about it more. Or you might think that you care an appropriate amount in terms of the salary and benefits that you offer. I would like to hand this question, if I could, over to Andrew, who is our head of workplace wellbeing at Mind. He explained to me a very clear business case. And actually a very clear legal case for investing more and doing better when it comes to employee mental health. Here's
3: Andrew. We've seen significant improvement over the last five years or so in terms of organizational adoption of mental health and well-being as a key agenda item. To some extent that came from the Thriving at Work review, which was published in 2017. Uh, It was uh, commissioned by Theresa May many governments ago. Uh, and written by Paul Farmer and Lord Dennis Stevenson, Paul Farmer being mine's former CEO. But it really set out a series of recommendations for government and a series of ways in which any organization of any size could really look to make improvement. But it also set out the economic case, and it was really one of the kind of foremost, largest, actual evidence base that set out a real business cost to employers of not investing in mental health and well-being. Uh, which is currently $53 to $56 billion for anybody listening. It's not an insignificant cost. Um, and that's through absenteeism, staff turnover, presenteeism, loss of productivity. But that document really did have a change for how employers look to adopt good practice. What I will say is that there's significant recommendations that have not been enacted by government. Some element of that is the extent to which there have been changing in government since that report was published. And whilst we have seen increased adoption, the conversations that we often have now with government and with employers is that we see an increasing number of employers looking to raise the ceiling that want to do better and better and better, but there are still a large number of employers across the country and it's not specific to any size or sector but that are doing the bare minimum. And I think the conversation that we're often having with government at the moment is how do we look to raise the floor? Because there is already this momentum. There is a number of people that recognize the cost of poor mental health that want to make those improvements, but there is a subset of those organizations who do not want to do anything, do not recognize it as their responsibility, think it is an individual responsibility. And we do need to find a way, whether it's through regulation or enforcement or anything else at looking to improve the experience for those employees. And some of that is enforcing what is already in place. So many people do not realize that there is already a statutory requirement to do a stress risk assessment. That is a requirement of HSE. The vast majority of organizations in the UK would not realize that and do not have that in place but it's not something that's particularly enforced.
0: Michael agrees that investing in positive physical and mental health is good for everybody and offers some insights from Coothworks Research.
4: It's beneficial to everybody to support positive mental health and improve mental health. Um, You can't operate a workforce if people are way sick, absent. Um, There's a company here called Good Shape, who we know well, um, and they've got some really intriguing data. They track reasons for absence and mental health is right up there. And actually they'll tell you, if you look more de- into detail about why people are off sick, um, you know, with an ailment, you know, not, they don't have a stomach bug. They're dealing with something that is really personal to them um, and it's affecting their ability to work. So if you want to maintain, um, you know, from a purely financial perspective, productivity of your organization, or a more humanistic approach, which we're all humans and we all have emotions and um, many leaders are very in tune with this. If you just want to see the humans that work in your business um, happy, um,
1: it makes sense in so many different ways. And of course, you know, I think we've all done it. We just don't feel like going into work at some point. You ring up and go, oh, I'm sorry, I've got a stomachache or something like that. It's not that, it's something a little bit more deeper than that, isn't it, sometimes?
0: Yeah, it often it often is. And I think what Andrew said there was really interesting as well. It is a legal requirement for organisations to conduct a, a stress risk assessment. That's the HSC management standards that, that are in place. And I'm, I'm not sure I've ever come across an organisation, particularly a small business, that actually has that in place already.
1: So that's the business case, We're putting it together. So let's go into the first line of defence, defense, this primary level. Can you explain to me, Leah, what it all means?
0: Yes. So the various lines of defense to explain that we'll be taking you through the psychological wellbeing intervention framework. And that was presented by Sheena Johnson. Fun fact, my former lecturer at Manchester Business School. So yeah. Uh, along with Ivan Robertson and the infamous Kerry Cooper in their book, Wellbeing, Productivity and Happiness at Work. It is a real Bible for any people and culture practitioner. And of always, I will leave a link in the show notes. So. The Psychological Wellbeing Intervention Framework talks about primary, secondary and tertiary levels of intervention. And of course, a good well-being strategy is going to include all three. So the first line defense is the primary level intervention. This is aimed at enhancing the work situation. So to improve the impact of the work environment on individuals. So that can include things like job redesign, culture change, flexible working, work-life balance policies. So basically all the organizational level interventions. Now, this is challenging for organizations because typically it does mean making fundamental changes to how your employees work, how your business operates. And there may be resistance from within the organization because it might mean that people need to take on different priorities or different responsibilities. But it's like that old saying goes, isn't it? Anything worth having doesn't come easy. And in fact, if it's taken seriously with a commitment, as always, from the senior leadership team, primary level interventions have the most impact but the question of course is always where do you start how do you know if your strategy will have impact we asked our guest amy who as you heard earlier wrote and implemented the well-being strategy for the eu parliament
2: well i guess i mean it's not really about knowing whether you're getting it wrong i guess the question is is what you're doing having any impact right so i mean because i am a dinosaur i spent the first decade no one was talking about mental health like it was a challenge to get organisations to talk about stress you know let alone anxiety and depression right so but now we've gone to like you can't open your um, you can't open a newspaper without somebody talking about mental health usually prince harry but you know any celebrity will do people you know it's kind of it's the thing but we've and wellbeing like we are sat at a wellbeing exhibition In a conference, this would not have happened 10 years ago. The trouble is, is that everyone's plowed into it with very well intentions and good, but I don't think there's a lot of thought about what you're trying to do as an organization. When I work with people, they're either starting out on a rabbit in headlights because there's so much going on, they don't know what to do, or they've done some stuff, but it's kind of like throwing paint at a wall. Like, we'll just put stuff in and hope it sticks. So you don't really know whether you're doing it wrong. I guess the question to ask is, what are you trying to achieve and what impact has it had? The first question I, I ask anybody I'm working with is what are we talking about here? health, mental health, well-being, what does that mean for you and your organization? And actually the word strategy, right? Strategy in itself means having a goal, an actionable goal that you can then work towards. Right? Most of what we see in terms of well-being is not strategy, it's tactics. And actually, so it's about putting some strategic thought. You only know if something's had impact or working if you had a goal in the first place and you're measuring whether you've achieved it or not.
1: I like this. It's not strategy, it's tactics. And this is what Leanne always says, I think, which says sticking a pool table in the break room is a tactic, not a strategy. So she also explained that it's not just enough just to have this strategy, but you need to kind of live by it. You need to role model the desired behaviors and embed the strategy into the operations.
2: Oh, it's the thing that frustrates me the most. Or you've put in a really good strategy, but then you're still measuring people on their targets, or if you miss your targets, you go... Or you've got senior leaders who think that they've created a wellbeing or mental health strategy for everybody else in the organisation other than themselves, because obviously as a senior leader, you don't have mental health or wellbeing. And so actually the behaviours that you're role modelling are completely different to what you're rewarding everybody else to do. A big part of what we talk about is about how you make it really clear what you're doing and how and how that fits together. But you also then wrap that into performance management and you measure people based on the behaviors you're trying to drive in your well-being strategy. Otherwise, you are just wasting your time.
0: Andrew also believes that role modeling behaviors is essential in driving business and culture change, including policies relating to flexible working and work-life balance.
3: So the first thing that any manager, any senior leader can do to try and foster that culture of openness is to role model good behavior. Um, so again, if your employees are working long hours and they don't feel that they're able to say, I'm struggling or I need to have some work-life balance or I need to set some boundaries, you being really clear about what your own boundaries are, leaving work at a good hour, not sending emails at ridiculous o'clock is going to set that environment in which it's made clear that there is a priority on mental health and well-being as a starting point. Equally, and we did see this a lot during the pandemic, managers and senior leaders feeling that they're able to share their own experience of poor mental health or where they've struggled uh, or just tips and techniques that they use themselves um, in supporting their own mental health and well-being is something that, again, kind of opens up the conversation. So you can say, you know, and again, it doesn't need to be speaking about a mental health problem specifically, but it can be me talking about how, and again, this appears in our wellness action plan guidance. And I've spoken on many webinars at this point, uh, <laughs> But again, how every morning I, during the pandemic and even now kind of hybrid working, I'll go for a fake commute. So I'll leave the flat. I'll walk around the block for like 15, 20 minutes. I'll grab a takeaway coffee. I'll come back to the flat. And it puts me in the mindset that I've now come into work and that I've not just come back to my bedroom and rolled out of bed uh, and gone to a desk. And that is a really helpful boundary for me between my home life and my work life
0: so primary level interventions are things like job design flexible working work-life balance policies it's policies but it's not enough to have the policy in place as a leader you need to live it you need to role model those behaviors i remember talking to a leader i think it was actually at the water as well he said that i always leave work at five o'clock i'll sometimes need to do an hour or so at home but the important thing is my employees see me get up and walk out the door at five o'clock because then they know they can too And again, sharing your your own experiences. I've heard, you know, some organizations say, oh, we've got a great EAP program, but nobody accesses it. Well, maybe you access it and talk about your experience you've had. And I think this is where it's really bringing these primary level interventions to life that probably, and probably for legal reasons, the majority of organizations have. But are they being brought to life? Are they being lived within the organization? Another intervention in the primary level is culture change. And it's actually one of the most prevalent primary interventions. And this is what we specialize in at Oblong. Culture can feel really intangible and leaders often don't know, again, where to start. So we developed our RX-7 model, which is really just to distill culture into seven foundations that are predictive of positive outcomes, including employee well-being, productivity and business performance. We're currently working with private clients using the RX-7 to help with culture change. We are releasing it publicly very soon, so keep an eye on our website. Or if you can't wait, drop us an email. I won't dive too much into it now, but in terms of the seven foundations, they are reason, role, recognition, resources, relationships, resilience, and remote. And I'd like to take a moment just to focus on that first foundation of culture – Reason. So, reason is about providing inspiring leadership, a clear vision, and work with meaning and purpose. The aim is to help our employees feel fulfilled to have purpose. There are so many studies that have shown that in well-being terms, having purpose in life is critical. Without purpose, we're unlikely to experience the highest levels of well-being. And purpose is, of course, subjective and it's different for each of us, but it is typically derived from work, relationships and health. We asked our guests what gives them purpose and the energy to continue this fight to build mental health awareness and workplace cultures in which people thrive. Here's Amy.
2: Do you know, I question this frequently because my life would have been so much easier in my early 20s if I had just gone into a normal career. Because I say normal, like I have been bashing my head against being a pioneer, for not deliberately, for so many years. I mean, when I went into this, tech didn't exist, mental health didn't exist, workplace didn't exist. And actually, I think I would have made a lot more money and had a lot more kind of uh, less angst in my life had I just chosen a career path that was <laughs> already existed and that was stable, especially if you throw on the nuances of being a, a passionate woman because that holds against you in society and, and motherhood is a whole other car crash. Um The honest answer is... I don't know. I grew up in a family of health and mental health. My father was a psychiatrist. Um, I love helping people in a not enough way. You know, I think I was born with a skill set of being able to talk and being able to have an active brain and be able to translate things and, and see the bigger picture, but also have the skills to be in the smaller. It's just always it's just felt innate. I think if some people are born on the planet knowing they want to be singers, right, you know, I kind of fell into health and mental health and seeing systemic change and when I make decisions about how I spend my time, I always try to think about what actual impact that's having on other people. I would have made so much more money and I think life would have been so much easier if I'd have just gone into the city at the age of 20 but you just, sometimes you just realise you're not wired that way and I'm just not wired that way. It's always been around health, mental health and women's rights, you know, those are things that I don't know when I start talking about just sort of something comes up, you know, I can't, I don't know. I, I it's like some people know they're going to be ballet dancers at the age of five. Uh, I kind of wish sometimes there'd been something else because it would have been a lot easier and a lot more straightforward than kind of, but, but, you know, I think there's a lot of legacy and impact that I will leave. Hopefully. We also asked Andrew who shared his personal
0: journey with mind.
3: So I've been at mind for five years now, um, in a variety of different roles, Uh, To bring myself to the head of workplace well-being at Mind and all in the workplace well-being uh, department. But previous to that, I worked at a university and I was putting together our kind of student experience strategy. Um, And in so doing, we were part of, we were one of, I think it was 12 um, universities and student unions that was doing a survey on student well-being. And that had some really stark results for the mental health and well-being of students, which included the number of students just at our institution that had had suicidal ideation. That was really upsetting, frankly, for the number of students that were kind of within our care and that we were looking to support on campus that were having these feelings and potentially not accessing support. Uh, And again, it really posed the question to me around what more... What more could I be doing beyond just what I was doing at the institution? Uh, at the institution, we really looked at how we reframed a lot of our services through a well-being lens. So our sports clubs and societies, we offered for free to students. And that was very much with a well-being intention. And how students could access funding was essentially justifying how it supported student well-being moving forwards. So we did kind of reframe a lot of what we were doing. But the question to me was really this is a larger problem in society. It's not a problem that's going away. And actually there needs to be a cultural change in society about how we think and talk about mental health that is going to really facilitate this longer term benefit. And for that reason, I then started uh, joining the time to change team, Uh, time to change being an anti-stigma campaign that ran through 2020 uh, from about 2010. Uh, And again, that was all about breaking down stigma, opening up conversations Increasing mental health literacy and the program's kind of legacy really is the increase in mental health literacy, and over that period, a significant reduction in stigma. So, that's really what brought me to mind and got me passionate about the subject.
0: So, as a leader, maybe take some time this week to reflect on your reason, your purpose, and also the reason you're giving to people. So, they want to come and work for you, they want to get out of bed in the morning, they want to contribute to mission delivery. And to paraphrase the greatest philosopher of our time, Sir RuPaul Charles, if you can't inspire yourself, how the hell are you going to inspire anyone else?
1: So if you're listening to this podcast, it's highly unlikely that you're completely closed off to the idea that well-being is good for business. You're going to be at least open-minded and more likely to be kind of a believer in the people and culture cause. But what happens if you don't have the seniority or the authority to put this kind of strategy in place? How, as people in culture or HR practitioners, are we going to secure the buy in of the board and the senior members? Amy's advice is to arm yourself with the numbers. That's what they like.
2: So, I'm a great believer in I've got a finite amount of energy and time on this planet. So, let's use it on things that actually is going to have impact. But actually, what I've found with those sorts of people is sometimes they can be your biggest champions, right? There are some that you're just never going to get there. So, you know, you can usually figure that out quite quickly. What I end up doing is like creating the jigsaw and the structure around other things. And a big part of what I have always done in whatever role I've done is being able to speak different languages. So when I ran my mental health tech startup, I was, my father was a psychiatrist. It was taking his knowledge, right? That's how I got into this world. He specialized in stress, anxiety, depression in the, in like the eighties. So taking clinical language and tech language and business language and translating them into something that works. So that's where I think my skill set is, is being able to do that. So with those sorts of people, there's some that you're never going to get on board, There are actually a a lot of people that if you have the right conversation, totally get it because it's happened to them. Their wife's an alcoholic, their daughter's had bulimia, you know, there's a lot of that. But also um, when you've created your strategy and your aim and what you're trying to do, right, which is the bit that most people seem to forget. It's then about creating the narrative around that, right? And then selling that narrative. Most of health, mental health and well-being is stakeholder management. So having a narrative, which is this is the right thing to do for productivity, for profitability gets people on board, but also numbers, right? So when I work with organizations, one of the first things we look at is how much health and mental health is already costing them through absence, through people who are sick. Uh, I try to stick to things you can actually measure, not sort of waffly, you know, productivity-type things, although people would argue you can measure that, but that's a whole other debate. When you look at what you're already spending, and then you say, well, this is not strategic spend. We're an organisation that actually prides itself on numbers if we reallocate that strategic spend rather than absence we're putting it into decent health providers it'll make us more profitable and more productive and you quantify that which you can that gets some of the dinosaurs that aren't me but the white male ones you're talking about on board so it's about having a number of different narratives up your sleeve figuring out who you're talking to and then turning it and sometimes it can be I went in to, to deal with a load of audit partners at Ernst & Young. And our audit partners, if you can imagine, they are the bean counters of the bean counters, right? So, so very, very, you know, exactly as you've described, analytical people. And I went in with my slide pack, you know, thinking, because it's always hard when you're a sort of woman in your early, late. Like, I think I was late 20s, early 30s, trying to get on board, those sorts of people. And they surprised me because, you know, I had my slides on numbers and all they wanted to talk about was this being the right thing to do. But I've gone into other audiences that I thought would be soft and cuddly and spent an hour justifying the numbers on slide one. So it's just about being armed with knowing what you're doing, having the numbers, measuring it, being really clear what your strategic aims are and how you're going to measure it. But then figuring out different ways of selling it based on who you're dealing with.
1: It's like anything you want to get buy-in on, just go with the numbers take yourself take a pdf like remember we said from was it last week where we were talking about or wimby the week before we were saying that the way that amazon does anything is they don't put together a project proposal they put together a report of how it's going to look when it's finished and then that's basically their objectives their aims the targets everything so just do that and go and get buying. it's the same as anything else
0: yep some really great advice from from amy there and hopefully and we'll, al and, and al sorry yes some <laughs> great advice from amy And Al, there Mm -hmm. on how you can secure (laughs) the buy in from your board and leadership team. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Leah, can you just talk us through the secondary level?
0: So basically where primary level interventions were about the organisation, secondary level is about the individual. So these types of interventions often help organisations to make significant improvements without all the upheaval of change that is needed for primary interventions. And they also have a more lasting preventative impact than tertiary interventions, which we'll talk about a bit more later.
1: The first of these three steps is just really raising the awareness of it. I mean, this is the core of secondary level, level interventions. Because you want to make sure that a certain topic or issue is more visible within the community or the business or, um, you know, the group in which you're trying to get this implemented in. The goal is to make people understand the importance of a certain issue and then find the support to address it. Now, Mind, an incredible organization, if you're not from the UK, Mind is massive. It's like at the forefront of some of this stuff. It's been raising awareness for mental health for 70 years Here's Andrew to
3: explain a bit more. One of the services that most people will use at Mind is our info line. Uh, Again, the Mind website has an A to Z, an introduction to common mental health problems, symptoms, treatments, where to go for support. Uh, Our side-by-side online community, which is kind of peer-to-peer, uh, there's a whole host of services, but we are a federated charity as well. Uh, so we have about 130 independent local Minds across the country. Uh, and again, many people will be familiar with their own local mind, and they provide kind of local community services to really speak to the specific needs uh, of some of our towns and some of our cities across the UK. But
1: it's not just the services that Mind offers that's raising awareness. Their research is, has had huge impact at the highest of levels. We asked Andrew about the latest results from Mind's flagship well-being Index.
3: Absolutely. So again, just to give a bit of background to anyone who isn't aware of what our index is, uh, our Workplace Wellbeing Index is our benchmark of best practice across the UK. Uh, it's been operating now for seven years. We've had 384 different organizations participate. Uh, we've got a ridiculous number of data points, something along the lines of 45 million data points through individual questions. Uh, and each year we have about 50,000 employees Uh, answer various questions about mental health in their workplace. Uh, So every year following that kind of cycle of surveying and benchmarking best practice, we produce our index insights. And that really says year on year, what are the trends that we're seeing? So the key statistic that I've been talking about today has been the fact that only 52% of employees who completed the workplace while being indexed would say that they feel supported by their organization. Now, that is a 6% decrease on last year. To some extent, we think that is related to a bit of well-being fatigue. And we also know that those employees have also said that they've seen a reduction in the amount of promotion from their organizations around employee mental health, around well-being, signposting to support services. So there's been an 11% reduction in the number of employees who have also said that they've seen that level of promotion. But that does mean that there's 48% of employees who do not currently feel supported in their business. So we know that's a significant number of employees.
0: This is quite a sad making statistic, isn't it? Half employees in the UK don't feel supported by their organisation. Oh, it, really, it just feels to me that organisations are maybe neglecting these secondary level interventions that are better supporting people with either, you know, the, the stresses they have, the demands of their role, stress management, positive health promotion, better recruitment, and of course, there's always better management. As we'll hear from Andrew, line management is is so important and the data, the latest data is backing this
3: up. But another kind of important statistic that's come out of this year specifically has been looking at the significant impact that line managers play in that level of support. So thinking about employees who say that they have supportive line managers, they're twice as likely to report good mental health outcomes compared to those that say that they don't have supportive line managers. And similarly, when looking at employees who say that they have effective working relationships with their line manager, they're three times more likely to report that they are happy at work than those that don't. So we know that line managers have a really important part to play in satisfaction at work how productive they are at work and their mental health outcomes at work. So that's been a lot of the narrative that we've really been talking about today about how do we take those findings and recognize the importance of line management and translate that into some practical action. And if you're going to be accessing support, you're most likely to be accessing that support through your line manager. If you're having conversations about workplace or reasonable adjustments, that's most likely going to be through your line manager. And again, we know that some of the challenges people have when they do have poor mental health is around competing tasks, competing challenges, knowing what to prioritize. And again, that workload prioritization, a lot of that comes directly from a line manager.
0: This is a really important aspect of secondary level interventions and the second that we want to highlight after raising awareness, training leaders. I feel like a broken record so I'm going to hand it over to Amy as to why training leaders is so important.
2: I mentor people across the industry. I guess the main difference with that is I'm working with individuals who are in those sorts of roles as opposed to writing strategies and they range from global wellbeing leads, but a lot of people are in SMEs or even running their own wellbeing businesses. And then what I realized while I was doing this mentoring work is that loads of people who are responsible for health, mental health and wellbeing, to be blunt, are really passionate about it and have pivoted in from different like their DNI or their learning and development or their health and safety or their HR. And they've taken the health, mental health, wellbeing role. You know, sometimes in an SME it's a board member or a director of ops. But they don't really know what they're doing uh, in terms of the wider health and mental health. So you end up with kind of health safety and well-being or diversity and inclusion with a bit of like mental health tacked on. Uh, So what I started to do is put together a practical training course which was how to do health and mental health and well-being in a comprehensive way that works and just run my first round. But as you said, like quite a few people who came, I had some global well-being leads and people from big companies, but I also had a lot of people from SMEs. I had someone from a school. And what was great was because you're running a course, everyone's sharing ideas and you can transpose something that works very well in an SME to a large company, but also be creative about different environments and industries. So obviously...
1: I think most of our guests believe that training line managers is crucial. and But Andrew believes that to create this kind of business change, we need to level up the mental health literacy. What a phrase of our leaders. Here's Andrew.
3: Now, over the last decade, mental health literacy has certainly improved, particularly in workplace settings. But again, there is still a number of people in society who do not understand that we all have mental health just as we have physical health. They think of mental health problems on kind of a linear Spectrum. So you're either mentally well or mentally unwell versus all of us having mental health, uh, it being something that we all possess. But, you know, some of us will have enduring mental health problems and some of us will not. But all of us have well being and it's perfectly natural for that to fluctuate day to day or after any kind of event. I think, again, particularly amongst SMEs, a lot of managers just do not feel that they have the time to commit to having conversations about mental health or well-being, a large number of them might not feel that it's their responsibility. They might feel it's the responsibility of either the individual uh, to kind of manage their own mental health and manage their own resilience, which would not be mine's position, Uh, or that it's the responsibility of HR or somebody that isn't them. And again, to them, we would say, you know, mental health and well-being and having that support available for your line reports is everyone's business. And it isn't just a moral thing to do. It's good business. Uh, Again, that's how you have happy, productive employees that deliver great results and having a conversation with your line report about how they best perform at work is only to the benefit of your team and your outputs. Uh, But again, a large part of it does come down to having that time to have those discussions. If those line managers feel that they're under pressure, that they do not have time to stop and think, they're perhaps not going to be prioritizing the time that's needed to have a one-to-one conversation. And again, we know that to be effective in providing that support, you do need to have that one-to-one conversation with your line report. Trying to have a broad brush approach is not going to be particularly effective. So we're
1: clearly putting a lot on these leaders and line managers. All of our expectations are rising. And of course, we need to work to protect our own mental health and the mental health of our leadership peers and managers across the business. So I asked Andrew, what can we actually do to ensure that leaders and managers are also supported with their mental health?
3: So I think it's about having conversations with those line managers and making sure that as a starting point, everyone is on the same page about the importance and priority of mental health and well-being for themselves, for their teams, for the whole organization. I think it's also about having conversation with those managers about what support they need to support their people. Uh, again, if you think about, you know, workplace adjustments, for example, you might be having team members come to you as a lay manager asking for workplace adjustments. But if you're not sure of your organization's policy on the subject, if you're not sure what the organization deems reasonable or not reasonable, what budget's available, how you're able to effectively signpost to support that you might have internally or how you signpost externally, those are all barriers to that lay manager feeling able to support, to be able to support themselves. So again, it's having that conversation with a manager about what can, you know, that senior leader, that business owner, what support can they provide their line managers that's going to make the process as simple as possible? And again, that's often a reason that employees themselves quote, why they don't disclose that they have a mental health problem, because they don't have faith that anything's going to change as a result. And quite often for the line manager, that's because they don't know how to, they'll have the conversation, but they don't know how to then enact the change that's required. So just trying to have really strong communication and real clarity for what next steps look like for line managers is really important. But I'd also look to signpost employees and line managers and senior leaders, just everybody, um, to our wellness action plan template. So it's probably the most commonly uh, given recommendation that we have at mind to businesses that we work with. But a wellness action plan is essentially... For LIME managers, a bit of a template on how to have a conversation with a line report, but it goes through what are the things that are sources of stress and sources of poor mental health for you? What supports you to have the best possible day at work? What supports you to thrive at work? When you're struggling, what does that look like? How does that manifest for you? Are there any signs that I should be looking for? Which, if you're working now in a hybrid environment, actually having that plan and having your employee tell you explicitly. What that looks like is really important because it might be harder to kind of pick out some of those elements or changes in behavior if you're only looking at someone through a screen. And then what do you want them to do? So if they do spot some of those signs, do you want them to say something? Do you want them to send an email? Would you prefer that they message someone in your household or a family member? What do you as an employee want those next steps to look like? So again, it's really helpful for line managers to facilitate a conversation with their line reports. And if you feel that you don't have a particularly supportive manager as an employee, it can be a really helpful reflective exercise in and of itself. But also it does give you a kind of entry point to having that conversation with your line, re- uh, your line manager, because you've already done the hard work of thinking about the questions, reflecting on them, putting them down on paper and saying, this is how I think I could be a more productive employee. And positioning that with your line manager is a very difficult conversation to not listen to. Uh, and again, it gives it a real obvious structure for a line manager to be able to take away, read and fully comprehend and understand.
0: Just to pick up on, on a couple of things that Andrew said there, I think helping line managers signposting is really important. Just create a one-page document you know, based on the challenges that people are experiencing and, and have a service that managers can, can signpost employees to if they need to. It's not fair to put our line managers in these situations where, you know, a vulnerable employee comes to them and they don't know what to do or, or can't do anything about it. And I think it's a second part to that as well. It's training line managers to have these difficult conversations, to not freak out if an employee comes to them and says, I'm not doing so great. Our instinct is to fix things, particularly line manager. We just want to fix things. We want to make it better. And as we talked so much before, often it's just creating a space for somebody to be heard, to talk about what they're experiencing and just listen. But of course, again, line managers need this training and need this development to help them do that effectively. If you are looking at line manager training, please do get in touch. Uh, We have, again, we can signpost you to some great providers and talk to you about the, the type of line manager training you want that's going to have the most impact in your business. The final aspect of secondary level interventions that we want to highlight is earlier interventions. So secondary level along with primary level interventions are a really important opportunity to prevent mental health challenges from escalating. It really is about prevention over cure. Mental health is common. One in six of us will experience a mental health disorder in our lifetime. That's more than diabetes, which is 1 in 11. Heart attacks, that is 1 in 8. Alzheimer's, which is 1 in 9. It's the same as a stroke, 1 in 6. Prevention is a powerful approach in the workforce and many providers are championing this, including COOTH work. Let's hear from Michael.
4: So I think really where we need to be looking at as a whole, everybody who's at the water cooler event and um, everybody myself, my colleagues at Cooth Work and the wellbeing leaders we work with somehow we need to try and put in some early interventions in there because we can all try and provide fixes at the end, you know there's great support through EAPs and um, there's some great resources out there to help people who are actually going through um, a mental health crisis and that kind of that kind of cure side, but I think where we need to really focus our energy now is on prevention and early intervention. You know, this is a personal opinion of mine, but I always think that mental health is, uh, it's mental health safety because, you know, if you're dealing with construction industries or, um, you know, um, emergency services like we do, you've got there's a heavy emphasis on prevention. You talk to someone from the fire services, right? They learned a long time ago about the best way of preventing a fire or a best way of tackling a fire is that the fire doesn't exist in the first place. So fire services spend enormous amounts of their resources and time preventing fires. Educating public, changing culture and understanding. And that's exactly the same approach that we should be taking with mental health. The best way to prevent mental health decline or the best way to deal with mental health decline is to prevent it happening in the first place.
0: I started this episode with the lines of defence and risk management to really make the point that there is synergy, but we've also done it before. If we look at the number of deaths caused by accidents and work in 1912, it was estimated that between 18,000 and 21,000 workers died. With improved awareness and efforts from business leaders, that went down to 13,000 in the 1950s. We then had the introduction of the Health and Safety at Work Act in 1974, and that saw deaths by workplace accidents drop to just 651. Between 2021 and 2022, there were 123 deaths due to accidents at work. That's 21,000 to 123 in a hundred years. It really it, it really is. It really shows that through awareness, improved regulation and prevention, we can make a significant difference if we take on this responsibility as businesses, as leaders, to improve the state of mental health in our workplaces. I've worked with C-suite leaders who take enormous pride in health and safety improvements, improvements they've made in their workplace or in their manufacturing sites or in their supply chains. Imagine if leaders took the same approach and pride in reducing the prevalence of mental illness. Here's more from Michael and the work he's doing at KOOF to encourage this approach.
4: We we talk to hundreds of companies every every year, and the wellbeing leaders, and also leaders of companies who are interested in improving the mental health of their staff. So it's not just restricted to the HR and wellbeing set, but those are the people we normally have first conversations with because they're in tune with it. Um, But when we speak to them, um, it's interesting when you ask them what they already have in place. And what we tend to see, and this is a sweeping generalization, but actually the, uh, the data in the Flourish report does actually speak to this as well. Um, there's quite a formula that most businesses follow when implementing support and interventions for their staff. Um, and it tends to be more on the crisis side when someone's really in dire need of help because that's when they're more, most visible. They're off. They're absent. Um, they've left the company or um, something catastrophic has happened. And that's when it suddenly registers with the organisation and the leadership that, oh, right, okay, we need to do something. I'm, I'm, and I'm saying this is a, often a trigger Um, there are thankfully lots of employers out there who are proactive and realise this at a very early stage and are doing, taking steps to um, prevent things like this happening but by and large the theme, the trend is that things happen when the need arises because you're talking about investing finite resources, time, money spend and that tends to happen when something, the red light flashes, but by by then it's already happened. So really what we're trying to talk to employers about um, today and in general is about how to get that early warning, how to get in there and first of all, provide the tools for them
1: to understand what's going on below the waterline, so before it becomes a red light flashing. So Michael then went on to say that we can use this data to not only understand the current state of mental health in an organisation, but we can predict what will happen if the risk isn't managed or the early interventions aren't put into place. Yep, we're back to employee insights again.
4: We have tools like Flourish, um, which provide a deep dive into the mental wellbeing of your workforce. Um, we also have our ongoing well reporting which provides course corrections and helps you identify uh, presenting factors as you go along so you can tailor your engagement content and um, employee engagement programs, and what you choose to talk about in your business um, but it also helps you tailor the support that's needed but what we're seeing is the crisis support goes in first and then there's a bit of a, a kind of a sit back and oh we've done it now or we've got we've got everything covered, but then what we try to do is then start the conversation about okay, so that's great that you've got that, and we think that EAPs, um, crisis support, mental health first aiders, they are absolutely critical to your ecosystem of support for your workforce. But then we start asking about what they are doing in terms of the preventing things getting into. The stage where they actually need to have first aid from a mental health first aider, um, or the crisis support access to the crisis support in their EAP. You know, why? What are you going to do for the other ninety-five percent of your staff who are potentially, you know, they're, they're not covered by these um, resources. They they don't need them. They're not at crisis level, but they're certainly wanting to talk to someone. And that gets that 's where it gets really interesting because all of a sudden then you realize there's no budget for it um, in a lot of businesses so it's a business case and they're trying to prove the need for something which might happen so we provide providing the data and the tools to be able to see what is coming through before it actually becomes a crisis point is where we're at we try and help people understand what they've got. And what they need um, to provide, um, both in the workplace in a virtual environment, how to change culture, and those insights are probably the bit that we see lacking most um, when people first start out on their journey on how do we introduce a mental wellbeing support plat- um, program for our staff.
1: So I'm pretty sure that back in 1912, the owners of mines and construction companies were like, well, it's the workers' responsibility to, to avoid falling off a fricking timber or something a thousand feet. And of course that changed over time. And, and now I don't think any construction company would ever think, oh, it's not my problem. It's not my responsibility to ensure that my workers are safe. I'm sure they're all going to say, yeah, it's definitely my responsibility. So we kind of feel like we're back in 1912 or perhaps perhaps a bit further on for mental health. In that, that now people are starting to realize leaders and organizations are starting to realize it is actually our responsibility to, we, we deal with the physical health. It's now our actual responsibility to, to ensure that people in our organization have got good mental health. So we are really, really early on at this. And if you're listening to this and you're nodding along with what Leanne says, just think you're a pioneer. You are like the one in a hundred people who are actually thinking about this right now in 20, 30, 40 years time. We're going to see this massive reduction in numbers, hopefully, because of regulation, because people are taking responsibility for it, because of people like you who are listening who are actually doing something about it. So, well done.
0: I'm, I'm, I just want to stand up and like clap. By I'm inspired. Let's do this.
1: I'm the Tony Robbins of the, of, of the well-being world. <laughs> Say yes.
0: No, brilliant. Brilliant and well, well said. So the final level is the tertiary level, and this is probably the one you're most familiar with and will definitely be the focus of most well-being support providers out there. It's about providing support or treatment for individuals experiencing problems with psychological well-being without making changes to the situation. So no changes in the environment, it's all about treatment for the individual. So that's things like counseling or return to work policies. So while our aspiration is to create environments that protect mental health and prevent mental health challenges, sadly, we're a long way off that. We don't operate in silos. And as leaders, it's important to recognize the external pressures that are causing added strain to our mental health. To explain more, here's Michael from Coothwork. Um,
4: in fact, we've just done our own Flourish um, research, which shows that 37% of staff are at risk of burnout. Depression is very high as well. Um, from that same source, there's over half of staff are at risk of burnout. So the the fallout from COVID has um, is really kind of happening now. Um, we're also experiencing new challenges as well, which are impacting on people's mental health, um, such as the cost of living. That's really kind of what's taking the limelight at the moment, and um, of course financial health and mental health are very very strongly and closely linked so we're, we're dealing with and we're seeing presenting issues from our data um, through the people using the system that they've got money worries money worries relationship issues things that are happening in the home affecting what's happening in the workplace
1: what's happening in the workplace affecting what's at home and the family unit that's what we're seeing Now, Michael went on to explain that the external pressures in the post-COVID era are adding up, and so the impact is actually unprecedented.
4: Okay, well, there's an interesting story. um, It hit the news on Sunday, and that was about how ambulance services were dealing. They dealt with 1.8 million. Now, I'll have to fact-check that because I'm trying to recall the stat, but 1.8 million people um, with mental health issues. That's the ambulance services just seeing that so I, th- I think it's the problem's not going away i think we're going to see all those step you know social technological economic and political or pestle however far you want to extend it um all those factors which none of us have control over you know you and i are sitting here we can't control what's happening in other parts of the world um we can only do our bit but i think these things are mounting up we are experiencing and the human population is experiencing challenges right now and especially in the UK um, which is where we focus um, employees and their families are all experiencing um, external factors that influence their mental health that they have no control over and it's unprecedented so it's quite a unique system um, position we find ourselves in and um, I think when you refer to this to the workplace, we're seeing, um, and through our Flourish research, um, which uh, is a really great report, kind of highlights the influencing factors, helps you benchmark and understand where your mental health of your staff are, what their needs are, but it also helps identify and reveal the influencing factors on what's causing poor mental health in your, in your workforce. And, um, the, the factors that are going to affect are having to do more with less. Um, people at work dealing with cost of living, that's constantly weighing on their mind. The mental health, uh, the, the things that are going on in their mind really affecting their ability to do their jobs. Um, and then things that are happening in the workplace, burnout, we've talked about that. Um, unmanageable workloads, um, all those things that are happening, the, the extra pressure they're experiencing in the work for, in the workplace, and then how that carries when they get back home, and how they interact with their family, and it, it becomes this um, this multiplier effect.
0: Michael was very clear in our conversation. Tertiary level interventions are great, but they only serve as a solution at crisis point. He introduced me to the missing majority in the context of the typical mental health support we see in organisations.
4: If you can imagine a, a typical mental wellbeing support ecosystem and approach, um, what we would normally see in most people, most companies that get started, they're focusing on the two ends of the spectrum. So they'll have the crisis support, but they'll also have an app, a digital app, which will be step counting, um, It'll include mindfulness exercises and things like that. But there's um, the this concept called the missing middle. Uh, I think it's well quoted. I can't remember which company defined that. We we define it as the missing majority because those people who are using mindfulness apps and step counters, they tend to be more on the flourishing side. You know, they are resi- they're, they're maintaining their resilience. The crisis side we know is about 2 to 5%. What about that massive number of people in the middle and the, depending on which statistic you read, the 55% or the 68% of staff who just won't talk about their mental health, especially to their employer? You know, what do they do? How do you prevent them from sliding into um, a crisis point? And how do you keep them in the healthy stage where they are, you know, um, pure, the pure activity of doing work creates stress and anxiety. <laughs> it's part, part of what we do. Um, but keeping that within a healthy range and how do you help people and provide the tools for them to um, maintain that healthy relationship with stress and anxiety without it slipping into the negative and the burnout and all the major issues and, and the, the, the issues that are going to affect workforce and, and our ability to function as organisations.
0: Michael and I also chatted about the similarities when it comes to disengagement or performance management. We tend to focus our energies on the fires or the people that are making the most noise and often at the expense of those that are in need of our leadership and in need of our support.
4: But, and they've got to have an outlet and it's not always... They're ready to talk in person or on a phone. They, they can't form the words. So how do they do that? I mean, we happen to have a tool which enables people to chat and type and, or just explore their own self-therapeutic options or join the online community. That's what we've got. But it is part of a bigger ecosystem. You know, you've got to have the on-site ability for people to talk in person or on the phone as well. We're not saying that you don't need any of that. You need, kind of need to cover as much as you can um, but everybody's organisation and workforce is a different makeup and they have different needs and understanding what the organisational needs are of your workforce um, is, is probably the starting point um, rather than just going down the same formula that, that is prescribed um, or, or the um, current recent thinking, it's like, what is right for your workforce and your organisation? What mental wellbeing needs do they need?
0: Tertiary interventions have a very important place in supporting the mental health and wellbeing of ourselves and our employees. And I'm sure this Mental Health Awareness Week and month, you have heard lots and lots about this type of wellbeing and mental health intervention. We are not saying that they don't have a place or they don't work. It's more that they need to be playing a role in a broader ecosystem of support that also includes primary level and secondary level interventions. And this is a contribution that we wanted to offer to Mental Health Awareness Week, that an effective wellbeing strategy needs to be data-led and holistic in its approach. As leaders, we should be identifying the primary, secondary and tertiary interventions that meet the needs of our employees and have measurable impact on wellbeing.
1: Right, we've covered a lot. So let's end this conversation by looking to the future. We asked Andrew from mine what he thinks the future holds for mental health awareness and protection.
3: And then I think the next big thing that we are seeing, again, thinking more positively uh, at those that are doing fantastic things, uh, particularly amongst those that we work with and that we've worked with for a number of years. They've really established, again, that foundational understanding of what mental health is, what best practice looks like. And they're now wanting to explore how do... How does that intersect with other areas of people's identity? So thinking about support for mental health and menopause, for example, or mental health for parents, or how does that intersect with neurodiversity or the LGBT community? And again, for those that read the Index Insights, they'll see that we've got a breakdown of results according to people from minority ethnic communities, LGBT communities, and young careers. And a key recommendation is really thinking moving forwards for those organizations that are doing fantastic things, not just thinking of what is your mental health strategy, but thinking about how do you make that strategy audience specific and think about the different needs and challenges that different kinds of employees within your business might be facing. And I think that's the exciting thing that we're going to be seeing over the next few years. And again, the exciting thing that we're seeing at this very event. So again, you can see that there are services that are for menopause are services about parents and mums. So again, I think that's the, in, the really positive narrative that's coming out of today and that we're going to see over the next couple of years.
0: I hope that's given you some information, inspiration to create a well-being strategy that is going to have impact, real impact on your employees' mental health. Thank you so much to our incredible guests, to Amy, to Michael and to Andrew. We salute you. We are behind you. We are championing you. Keep doing the incredible work. It is making a difference and it is driving change.
1: As always, we'll leave all the links to our guests and the services they offer in the show notes, including a link to incredible Amy's mentoring and stretching services and also our training courses, the research reports quoted by Andrew and Michael and the services offered by both Mind and Cuth Work.
0: Yes. And do keep an eye on our website. We are in the process of updating it and adding more exciting content to it, uh, which we will tell you about very, very soon. Thank you so much for listening. It's another week. Um, And we've got another episode next week. We're very predictable in that way.
1: (laughs) We are. And if you are listening to this, now let me see when will this go out. This will go out on Wednesday. You won't have much time. We'll be at the Clark and Well Design Week on Tuesday, Wednesday. So if you're listening to this Wednesday morning, you're going to have to run really quickly down to Clark and Well Design Week (laughs) and you'll come and find us there. Um, And so we'll see you in a week's time with another, hopefully, great episode. Bye. Bye-bye.